Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now this is certainly a big text. And I trust in the time that we have, I will be go, I'll be able to uh, go through this entire chapter. But I want to start by saying this. This is not a chapter that deals with how to find your spouse in 12 steps. This is certainly not a passage on that, even though some have thought of this passage to be so. I mean, there's certainly some principles that you can draw out from it, but that's not the overall intent of this passage. In fact, what you see here in this passage is God's providential working. See, God had promised Abraham that through Abraham and through his offspring, God's plan of redemption and his promises would continue on from generation to generation through that promised line. And so what you see here then is how God providentially works as this servant is sent out on this mission and how God brings everything together so that a bride can be brought back for Abraham's son Isaac. Why? So that then the next generation, the promised seed line can continue and God's purposes can continue. That's what this whole passage is. Is about. And I trust that as we look at this passage, that we will be reminded of just God's providential working. We will be reminded of just how great and good God is, and that we would have assurance in who God is, and it would just cause us to rely on Him and to be faithful to Him, even as God works in and through our lives as well to accomplish His purposes. So I've divided this passage into three sections. You have the servant's mission in verses 1 through 9. Then you have the Lord's providence, which is the biggest section in verses 10 through 61. And then we have the couple's meeting in verses 62 to 67. So let's look firstly at the servant's mission. Verse 1, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in all things. Now we know from the previous chapter that Sarah, the matriarch of the family, is dead. Now, Abraham has gotten old, and he's really in his last days. The Lord has been faithful to his covenant with Abraham to bless Abraham in every way over the years. But but there is a problem. Isaac, his son, is still single. And so before Abraham dies, he wants to ensure that his son Isaac is married. Why? Because it's not just the, you know, just a normal desire for a father to, you know, have their children married, but even more so, this is the the promised son through whom God's promises, God's plan would keep moving down from generation to generation. So he wants to ensure God's purposes and God's plan. And that can come about only after Isaac is married and then they have a child and have a son. And those promises and blessings go down and God's plan is moving forward. And we already know from a couple of chapters ago that Abraham's brother had a granddaughter named Rebekah. We were already alerted to that and Abraham also knows of that. 
So Abraham is in his last days. His son Isaac is single. And he calls on his trusted servant to get a wife for Isaac from his family that he had left behind. Look at verses 2 through 9 again. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps a woman... Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now it's quite possible that this trusted servant who is in charge of everything that Abraham has is none other than Eliezer. If you remember in Genesis 15, that was the, the servant that he had and he thought, okay, if I don't have a promised child, he even spoke to the Lord and said, perhaps it might be Eliezer who could be my heir. So it's quite possible that this is Eliezer. Either way, the name of the servant is not given. And what Abraham tells his trusted servant is to make an oath by putting his hand under Abraham's thigh and swearing on the Lord. Now what's this business of putting his hand under Abraham's thigh? Well, what the servant was essentially doing is he's putting his hand near Abraham's reproductive organ. And it's it's some way uh, symbolic of reproduction or coming generations. And it's connected to God's promise of blessing to future generations. And he's asking the servant to swear by the Lord on this because what is at stake is the blessing through that promise line for future generations. And the oath that the servant has to take to get a wife for Isaac, he says, I'm going to give you two conditions. First he says, do not get a wife for my son from the Canaanites. Now why is that? We already know from Genesis 15, the Lord had said that in a few generations, that the Canaanites would be uh, dispossessed from this land of Canaan. And then if we were to go back to the time of Noah, we realize Canaan was that cursed son whom Noah had cursed. That was the cursed line. So these Canaanites are descendants of that. So these are cursed people of God. So Abraham doesn't want somebody whom God has promised whom God has cursed and will essentially kick out of this land. He doesn't want his son to get married to someone like that. In fact, the concern becomes clear later on as God will say to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 1-4, where he says, you know, essentially the, the issue is this. That the Canaanites are so pagan, so wicked, so perverted, so opposed to God to, that to marry Canaanites would cause the people to turn away from the Lord. And so this would have been a reminder even to the Israelites who are listening to this narrative the first time before they enter the land of Canaan. Don't marry the Canaanites. They will turn you away from the Lord. 
And I guess the parallel for us believers would be particularly for those of us, for those of you who are single and who intend to get married one day, that it is crucial to make sure that the person that you marry is a believer. Because if not, your marriage could significantly impact your relationship with the Lord. So Abraham is concerned that if, if Isaac marries into the foreign line of Canaanites, it could cause that covenant line to drift. It could cause Isaac to drift away from the Lord. So that's the first thing. And he says, but instead of that, you need to go to my father's house. To my father's family. And if you think back to, again, Noah, where does the line of Terah, Noah's father, come from? The line of Shem. That's the Shemites that we know. Remember, we talked about that when we looked back there. The Israelites, as you know, they are part of the Semitic people. That comes from the Shemite line. And that was the blessed line. So that's what he's saying. Go back there and get a wife for my son from there instead. Now the second condition was, now the servant asked, but you know, I'm just going to go there. You know, your son's not going to be there, but you, you know, what if I find this woman and she's not willing to come? Because she doesn't know this guy. The family doesn't see this guy. What's the guarantee that she's going to come? He says, shall I take Isaac back there to your homeland? And Abraham says, no, no, you shouldn't take my son there back to, out of this land of Canaan. Because as far as Abraham is concerned, this is the land. This land of Canaan is the promised land. And this is where Isaac needs to stay. He shouldn't go outside of the land. You know, Abraham knows even from personal experience how things don't go well for you if you move away from the promised land. And so he says, Isaac should not be taken away from the land. In fact, he's so confident in the Lord to provide a son for Isaac. And this is not just wishful thinking because he knows God has promised, hey, he's going to have descendants. So he's confident that God will provide a wife for Isaac. And he's so confident that he says, the Lord will send his angel before you and give you success. And he says, but if he doesn't provide this way, and the chosen woman doesn't come back to you, come back with you, you know, Abraham is still certain the Lord will fulfill his promise some other way. Either way, trust in the Lord. Trust in his guidance. And the Lord will fulfill his promise. He will be faithful. And so just trust in him and do what you're called to do. Now what's interesting is that the Lord will say something similar to the Israelites as well in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 23:20, 20, where the Israelites, as they're thinking of going into the promised land, the Lord will say in Exodus 23:20 20, that he will send his angel before the people to give to bring them to the promised land. And so even again as the people of Israel are hearing this, okay, so don't marry the Canaanites. God will go before you. God will be faithful to his promise even as the Israelites were called to conquer the land. Now here's something that I want you to see. See, in these verses, Abraham is trusting the Lord. He's fully resting in the fact that the God of heaven and the God of earth, he's a God who is sovereign over the entire universe. There's not one area where he's not God over. And so Abraham knows that this sovereign God has promised that through his offspring, the promises would continue, the plan of God would continue, the seed line would continue. 
And Abraham knows that God will bring all this about. But here's the thing. The Lord didn't command Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. Nor did the Lord say, hey, you need to find a wife for your son from your father's family. Then how does Abraham know what to do? Well, he knows what to do based on what God has already revealed to him. See, Abraham knows who God is. He knows what God has said. He knows that God has said the blessing to the nations would pass through his son to future generations. He knows God has taken him out of his homeland and the promised land is the land of Canaan. And he knows that God is going to take out the Canaanites one day. So based on that knowledge of what he knows, Abraham acts by calling his trusted servant to find a wife for his son. A couple of points of application here. See, there are things that God has explicitly said in His Word. Like, do this, don't do that. Very clear. God has revealed that very clearly. But then what happens when we are faced with the decisions that the Bible does not explicitly talk about? You know, that elusive question that everyone has. You know, what is God's will for my life in this particular situation? You know, what, what course do I take for uni? You know, I, there's this job and this kind of job. What sort of job should I take? Whom should I get married to? You know, where should I live? It could be any number of questions. You know, what is God's will for my life in, that, in this particular situation? Because there's no chapter and verse with regards to some of those things. How are we to discern God's will in that situation if God has not explicitly said anything about it? Well, we do exactly what Abraham did. We go back to God's word because God's word is always sufficient. And yes, God hasn't promised that, you know, thou shalt take this uni course or thou shalt marry this person or thou shalt take this job or anything of that sort. But we can understand what God has said in his word and we can take the principles and the promises and all of what he has said in his word and wisely then make a decision and move forward. Because that's what Abraham is doing here. He didn't get any direct revelation from God. Abraham, you must do this for your son. But he's applying what he knows to be true from God's word and God's promises, and he's applying that. That's how he knows God's will, and he's moving forward with that. And the second thing is also this, that Abraham, even though he's confident that God will accomplish this. He's not being passive about this. You know, he's not saying, oh, I know God will bring about the promised line through Isaac. And then he's just sitting there. Oh, you know, I wonder how God's going to do that. And, you know, he, like he's not doing anything and just totally passive about it. No, he's fully trusting the Lord to fulfill his promises. But it's precisely because he has that confidence in the Lord that causes him to act and say, okay, my servant, this is what you need to do because God will bring this to fruition. It's that confidence in the Lord that causes him to actually to act and not be passive. See, brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand is this. God is sovereign, yes, and he will bring to pass what he has purposed. But he brings about what he has purposed. He brings about his will through means. 
And one of the means by which he accomplishes that is how we as his children, as believers, apply the truth and principles of God's word. And then in accordance with that, we move for the glory of God and to say, okay, in light of what I know from scripture, I've searched through all of scripture and I get all the wisdom from it. I'm going to move in this direction. Our confidence in the Lord and what he has said should cause us to be active and not passive to do what he has called us to do and give him glory. So for example, if you've decided on a particular job, you're like, okay, I've thought through all these things and applied wisdom from everything that I know from scripture and this is the job that I'm going to take, or this is the kind of job I want. But here's the thing. The job is not going to automatically just come to you and fall on your lap. No, you've still got to apply for the job. You still have to work hard, even as you are trusting in the Lord. And then you say, and, and if I don't get this job, then I'm going to still trust God with it. He will provide in some other way. So that's what we see here Abraham doing. Abraham is fully confident that God will bring about what he has promised. Based on what God has said, now Abraham acts, applies wisdom and acts by calling his trusted servant to swear an oath to bring back a wife for his son from his kindred. And this brings us to now the Lord's providence in verses 10 through to 61. The Lord's providence. Let me just read 10 to 14. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman who I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one who you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So the servant swears by the Lord and he sets off. And he takes 10 of the master's camels, loads them up with the choicest of gifts and he heads to his destination. Now this journey at the very least would have taken three to four weeks. And he and when he gets to his destination, it's about evening time. And he's beside a well. Now in those days, typically the young women would draw water from, for the household or, uh, and the, perhaps even for the, the cattle and so on. Once the heat of the sun had come down, once the sun was beginning to set. So the servant is here at this point at a well. And he's praying. And he asks the Lord, seeks guidance from the Lord. And what it shows, two things. It shows both his reliance on the Lord. So he's not simply sitting there wondering, oh, I guess something will happen. No, he's relying on the Lord. He's trusting in the Lord. He is praying to the Lord, asking for guidance. But at the same time, he's also being active. And what it also shows here is that he is a believer in the God of Abraham. 
Because he himself is praying to the Lord. Lord, Lord, help me with this now. To figure out who this woman should be for my master's son. And he prays specifically. And he says that the young woman he asked for a drink of water from the well would not only give him water, but also give water to his ten camels. And that's how he would know that she was the potential bride. Now what's going on here? Now this is not some, you know, random sign that the servant is asking for. You know, sometimes in this day and age, sometimes people are so caught up in the mystical and the, the fancy and the extraordinary, they're just looking for these signs. You know, the, uh, similar to Gideon putting out the fleece. That's not what he's doing here. He's actually acting in faith. But what he's doing here in what he's asking, he's essentially wanting to know the character of the young woman in the short time that he would get to meet her. That's what he's doing here. Because here's the thing. See, most experts would say that, the, that a camel drinks about 25 gallons of water. What's 25 gallons? That's about 95 liters of water. And typically, a water jar in those days would hold three gallons of water, and that's 11 liters. So one camel, 95 liters, and this jar of water can hold how much? 11 liters. So that's already nine trips to and fro for one camel. How many camels does the servant have? Ten camels. So that's easily 90 trips. At the very least. And, and also, you know, certain wells during those periods, they were not just, you know, just a hole in the ground. Sometimes they were really deep wells and they were connected to a reservoir right at the bottom, an underground reservoir. And if it's that kind of well, then it would mean that she would have to use steps to go down into the well, fill up her jar, then come up the stairs and then go to these camels. And imagine doing this at least 90 times. I mean, this is, this is an almost impossible task or an extraordinary task. But you can also see how this is a test of character, right? Because it's one thing for a woman to give him some water. Because most women, if the servant was standing there and was standing by the well and said, hey, can you give me some water? Most women would have done that. But not every woman would do the hard yards of doing something like this, going back and forth 90 times. This would be somebody who's willing to go the extra mile. So the servant is being wise here. This is not some random sign that he's asking for. He's not looking for a special revelation from God. He's not looking for some you know, inner voice to speak to his heart and to say, oh, this is the woman. No, that's not how he's discerning God's will here. And that's not how we should discern God's will either. He's simply being wise. He's using common sense. He's relying on the Lord. And with what is before him, he now wants to get an idea about the character of this potential bride in the short time period that he's got. And so God answers his prayer even before he finishes his prayer. Look at verses 15 through to 21. Before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. 
Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her head and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So the servant is just about finishing his prayer in terms of, Lord, you know, perhaps a woman like this, who has a certain character, you know, that way I'd be able to know that, you know, this one's from the Lord. So as he's finishing up his prayer, he sees a beautiful young woman coming to draw water. And so now he asks the woman for some water and she gives it to him. And seeing the camels, without him even asking, she offers to give all his camels water as well. And the text specifically says she does this quickly. Meaning she's not doing this begrudgingly. She, she, she's really wanting to serve. And the servant is just standing there watching as she's going back and forth quickly, you know, drawing water for all the camels, wondering, is she the one that the Lord has appointed for my master's son? And what this test would have revealed to the servant is that this young woman serves her family because she's come out to draw water from the well. She's hardworking. She's kind. She's compassionate. She's keen to serve others and even go the extra mile. In fact, her quick going back and forth, you know, serving, it even reminds us of how Abraham was when guests came to his house and he was running around like a headless chook trying to be hospitable to the Lord and his servants. So this woman could very well be a good wife for his master's son. But the servant is still not sure because he doesn't know where this girl is from. What family is she from? Look at verses 22 to 28. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring wearing a half shekel, pardon me, weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nehor. And she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So I want you to think about this. At just the right time, on the right day, the servant meets this beautiful young single woman who is from Abraham's family, who is exceptionally kind and caring and compassionate and hospitable. The servant recognizes, hey, this didn't happen at random. This didn't happen by chance. This is the Lord being faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham in bringing this young woman to me. And he's so overcome by it all that there in front of the young woman, he bows down and worships the Lord and gives him praise. Saying, Lord, it is you who have done this. Now moving on, verses 29 to 33. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran and ran out toward the man to the spring 
And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, she, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house, unharnessed the camels, and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, Speak on. So here we are introduced to Rebecca's brother, Laban. And even though Bethuel is Rebecca's father, most commentators seem to think that either Bethuel is too old or too sickly, and that is why Laban is the in charge of the household at this point. And we're told that Laban, on seeing the, the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, runs out to meet the man. It gives us a glimpse into Laban's character. That he's a greedy man. He's just simply looking at the riches. He's seen, oh, wow. You, you, you know, these are costly ornaments. I need to go meet this man. And this is just a glimpse of his character. We'll get to know a lot more about Laban uh, in the coming chapters of the kind of person that he is. So Laban sees all these riches, all the jewels, goes, invites the servant into, the, into their home. He's very hospitable to the servant. And invites his men, you know, feeds the animals, and they all sit down to have a meal together. And I'm sure the servant is hungry, you know, after such a long journey. But he says, I'm not going to eat till I say what I have to say. I need to tell you what the Lord has done, and I need to tell you what I'm here for. See, the servant is so focused on his mission and what he has been sent for. And now the servant recounts. It's really a repetition of all that has taken place in verses 34 to 48. Now in the interest of time, let me just summarize it for you. And this is what he says. This is what he says to the family. As he's sitting there, he said, I'm not going to eat here, but I want to tell you what the Lord has done and why I'm here. And he says this, I'm the servant of Abraham. Yahweh, the Lord, he has blessed Abraham greatly and Abraham has become great. He has many riches. And then he goes on to say, Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore him a son in her old age. Now I'm sure they would have known from many years ago, you know, when when Neho and Milcah were still alive and Abraham and Sarah were all together under Terah's house, that Sarah was a barren woman. And when Abraham and Sarah parted ways with Neho and Milcah, Sarah was already 65. She was already an old woman then and she was a barren woman. So again, saying, but you know what? Sarah in her old age had a son. It is again pointing to the blessing of God. That God is doing a work in Abraham's family. And he says, and this son that Abraham has now is the sole heir of Abraham. And then he goes on to say how you know, Abraham made him swear that he would take a wife for his son, not from the Canaanites, but only from his father's family. And how the, Abraham assured him, hey, the Lord will give you success. He will go before you. And then he recounts the meeting with, uh, with Rebekah and, and he explains everything that has happened and how he had prayed to the Lord, particularly with regards to what 
Rebecca would do and exactly like that it came about. And he says how he worshipped the Lord, praised the Lord because this is all the Lord's doing. So at least the last part of it, as Rebecca is hearing this, she knows all that, at least from the encounter with her, all this is true. But this man is saying, this is all the Lord's doing. So with the whole recounting, what the servant is doing, he's conveying to Rebecca and her family, this is all that the Lord has been doing in Abraham's life, in giving him a son at an old age, And this same Lord is the one who has led me to your home. This is all of the Lord's doing. And this work of the Lord in Abraham's life and in that promised seed line and in all that he's doing, that's the basis of his petition now. Now because the Lord is doing all this work, I'm now coming on the basis of that to seek a wife for Abraham's son. And you know what the servant is essentially doing here? He's making known the knowledge of the Lord God to this family now. Because he's highlighting, hey, this is the God of Abraham. He's doing this. See what has happened in Abraham's life. See how he's brought me here. And he's making known the knowledge of the Lord to these people, to Abraham's family. And then he says to them in verse 49, Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right or to the left. So he's essentially saying, just as the Lord has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to my master Abraham, he's now asking the family members there, are you going to be steadfast? Are you going to be faithful and loyal to my master? And he says, you need to, be, you need to give me an answer right now. Yes or a no, so then I can decide what to do next whether I go to the left or go go to the right. Verse 50, 51, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We can not speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So then the men acknowledge, Yeah, this is the Lord's doing, as you have said. And so they say, We have nothing more to say. And they agree to let Rebekah go to be the wife of Isaac. Verses 52 to 56. When when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. I love this servant. I mean, when he sees the Lord working and answered prayer, right then and there, he bows and worships and gives thanks to the Lord, regardless of who is around him. And he's being a public witness again to the Lord. 53. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. So, everything has been agreed on. Abraham gives sort of the bridal price to the family as well. They sleep through the night, wake up in the morning. Now Laban and his mother, they say, oh, let, let Rebecca stay for a while. And it's literally, it is, let her stay a few days or ten. Meaning, it could be a few days, it could be ten days, It could be a few days more. It's very indefinite. 
And if we go by Laban's character years later as he deals with Jacob and how he tricks him to staying with him for many, many years, it is quite possible that what they're doing here is they're trying to keep Rebecca back, perhaps to get more riches. But the servant is shrewd and wise and won't have any of it. You know, he simply politely you know, brings it back to the Lord's purposes. He says, don't stop me. I must be about my master's business and the Lord's work. So don't delay me in this matter now. Verse 57 and 58. So they said, let's call the young woman then and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Rebecca finally says, yes, I will come with you. Now, this is a really big thing for Rebecca. It's a huge thing, and I want you to think about this. Rebecca is leaving her homeland, her family, and everyone she knows to go to a foreign land. To get married to a man that neither she nor her family has seen and to be identified with the God of Abraham. I mean, all she has heard is that this Lord God has been working in Abraham's life and in that promised seed line. And all that has happened now is also the Lord's work. So she has testimony of that. And so she's simply putting her faith in the Lord, believes in what the Lord is doing, and now wants to be part of that. That's all she's going by. Because this is all the Lord's work. And now she wants to be part of that. But imagine to an unknown land, to an unknown man. At the very least in those times, at least the family would see the guy. So even the family hasn't seen the guy. That's why even the servant right at the start said, what if the woman is not going to come with me? So this is, this is a very unnatural big thing even in that culture in that day. For her to leave everything, for a family to not know this man, for her to be sent off like this. She's putting her faith in the Lord and believes in what the Lord is doing and wants to be part of his work and therefore she goes. You know, there's a sense in which Rebecca is a bit like Isaac, uh, like Abraham who had to forsake everything trust in the Lord and go to this unknown land. Verse 59 and 60. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. See, the blessing here, it sounds a lot like what the Lord said to Abraham about his offspring after he offered Isaac in Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Your offspring shall be numerous as the stars in the sky. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So essentially, Isaac and Rebekah now share the exact same blessing. God is sovereignly orchestrating all these things, including this blessing, to show that Rebekah is the chosen one who will help realize the promise made to Abraham and his offspring. And verse 61 says, Then Rebekah and a young woman arose and rode the camels and followed the man, and thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. So Rebekah, her nurse, other seven girls, all of them go with her, follows the servant back to the Lord. So God's plan is moving forward. 
Let me just say this quickly and I'll move on to the last point. I just want you to marvel at God's providential work here. I mean, there's nothing extraordinary, you know, big supernatural thing happening here. It's just ordinary circumstances. God is working through these normal events and circumstances, including human choices. He's providentially working through all that to bring about what he has planned. Isn't that amazing how God works? You know, sometimes even for us, you know, we might be thinking, Lord, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to do this and do that. And we think, oh, these are all ordinary things that are happening. But we must never forget, oh, God is still working. Sometimes we might not see it because it looks so ordinary, but God is still using even very ordinary circumstances, ordinary people, and He's still going about His plan and purposes, and we can have full confidence in that. So God's plan is moving forward. And what you see here is that the while the servant has been wise and faithful and reliant on the Lord for all of his actions, it's ultimately not because of the servant's faithfulness or charisma or wisdom that God's plan is moving forward. Ultimately, it is moving forward because God's supernatural providence is working through various people and various circumstances to bring about what he has promised. Now, one last thing still remains after all these things have, you know, sort of aligned itself. Will Isaac accept Rebekah as his wife? And here we come to our last point, the couple's meeting in verses 62 to 67. Now the scene shifts to the land of Canaan now. Verse 62, 63. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in Negeb, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. You know what's significant here is this that although Abraham is the one who sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac, in this last scene, Abraham is nowhere mentioned. The focus is on Isaac. And we see Isaac, for the first time, independent of his father. And he's living in Negeb, not where the family home usually is, back in Hebron. And the text says, Isaac went out to the field as the sun is setting, or in the early evening. And so that's about the time when the stars are coming out. And I would think, you know, more than likely, he's, he's out in the fields. He's, he's meditating on the promises of God. And he's, as these little twinkle, twinkle stars are coming out in the sky, he's thinking of God's promises and he's meditating on them. And he knows his father has sent his servant to find a bride for him. So he's meditating, praying to the Lord to bring about his purposes. And as he's meditating out in the field, just as he's doing that, in the distance, this big entourage of camels coming toward him. With his chief servant and other men and from his father's household and also some ladies. I mean, what a sovereign God again. You know, God just providentially working here. And it says, rest of 63 all the way to 65. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. Notice what the servant says. As Rebecca sees this man in the field, and Rebecca asks, Who is that man there in the field? What does the servant say? It's 
my master. See, all this time, the servant referred to Abraham as his master. And Isaac was always referred to as the master's son. But now he looks at Isaac and says, he is my master. Why? Because now the, the, the legacy is now being passed on from, from Abraham to his son Isaac. The Lord is going to focus on Isaac now. He is now the new patriarch and the servant recognizes that. Because the God has been faithful to what he has promised as he has brought this bride along. And so Rebecca dismounts from her camel and she veils herself. So she does this out of respect and in those days the brides would be veiled before they got married. So essentially she's signaling, I'm the bride here. Now, verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So the servant explains to Isaac everything, how, how the Lord led him all the way through. And I'm sure Isaac would have been thrilled to hear about the account of Rebecca's character, how she's kind and compassionate and goes above and beyond to serve others. And even the fact that you know, when the servant told the family how the Lord was working in Abraham's life and how the Lord brought all this about, even though the family was a little bit reluctant, Rebecca was willing to leave everything behind, including her family, to come to an unknown land and to marry a man that she nor her family had met, and she was simply trusting in the Lord and His purposes. What do you think that would have done to Isaac, the son of laughter? I'm sure he would have laughed with joy at the time, just recognizing what the Lord had done. And so Isaac receives Rebekah as his bride, and they get married. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. See, by entering, by the text telling us that Sarah entered, pardon me, Rebecca entered into the tent of Sarah, the text is telling us that there is now a new matriarch for God's people. There's a new matriarch for the new patriarch. The baton has been passed from Abraham to Isaac and from Sarah to Rebekah. And this whole thing has been sovereignly brought about by the Lord. So what's the point of this text? And why the repetition of the whole account you know, when the, this chapter could have been so much more shorter. Where the, you know, the text could have just said, and the servant recounted all that happened to, the, uh, to him and just left it at one verse. Why all this detail? It's certainly, again, not to emphasize how to find a spouse. You know, one way in which we can stop ourselves from missing the point of the text is to ask, what did the original listeners, the, the Israelites, what would they have understood as they listened to this account? I mean, they certainly would have not said, okay, Genesis 24, now I know how to look for a spouse. That would not be what's going through their head. See, what would have been clear to them as, is that this is an account of how the Lord, because of His covenant faithfulness, providentially orchestrated things and guided the servant to bring about a bride for Isaac. And why was this so important? To continue the seed line, the promised seed line, so that God's plan and purposes could continue to move on 
forward. And the repetition of in this chapter, it would have highlighted to the Israelites of God's plan. How he, God will be faithful to accomplish his purposes through the servant, even through ordinary circumstances. Even while the servant has also been faithful to represent the Lord and tell others about the Lord. See, the people of Israel, as they're listening to this narrative, and remember, the first time they're hearing this is before they enter the promised land. They're waiting to conquer the land. And so they're reminded, God will be faithful to his covenant promises. And he will be faithful to his covenant people. They're reminded afresh of God's plan in this world. And how they fit in to God's program. How they are to represent the Lord and make him known to those around him. And how God would accomplish his purposes through them as he would most certainly go before them. God will bring it to pass because of his covenant faithfulness. So as the Israelites are listening to this, you know, the... The implication then is don't be concerned about you know, whether you will become a great nation or whether you will conquer the land or if the promised seed would come. Israelites, you simply need to rest in God and His providential working and be faithful to Him and make Him known and do what He has asked you to do. That's what they would be hearing as they heard this account. And so here's the big application for us then. As we think about the task that the Lord has given to us as God's people in this new covenant age. You know, we don't have to be concerned about, you know, with everything that is going on in this world, you know, how is the church at large going to survive? How will more people come to know the Lord? Because the, the world seems like it's going from bad to worse and they really deny the Lord and want nothing to do with the Lord. How is all this going to happen? We don't have to be concerned about that at all. Because Jesus has said, He will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, as believers, we can live in confidence as we strive to faithfully represent the Lord in every aspect of our life, as we, as we seek to make the name of Jesus known to others as we share the gospel, we can be certain God will then providentially, through ordinary circumstances of life, not through extraordinary ways, He will be doing His work and He will accomplish His plans and purposes of redeeming a people for himself. You know, this morning for the Bible reading, we read from John 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, a very adulterous woman. And really when you think about it, and when you think of even the picture of God sending a son to get a bride for himself. You know, this bride that God sent his son for was not, you know, somebody like Rebecca. No, it was a filthy bride, a harlot, much like the Samaritan woman. And yet, God sent his son into this world to die for this bride, this filthy, unfaithful bride, so that she could be washed clean and made anew. Friend, if you're listening to this this morning and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, every person stands before the Lord, not, not as this perfectly clean Rebecca kind of uh, person, but more like the Samaritan adulterous woman 
apart from Christ, that's how everyone stands before the Lord. Filthy in sin, guilty before the Lord. But this is what the Lord has done in sending his son, not just any servant, in his beloved son to redeem filthy people like you and me for his honor and glory. So if you're not a Christian today, let me plead with you, friend. Turn from your sin. There is hope in Christ. See what he has done. And if you say, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus and I believe in what he has done, then I would say, then keep turning from your sin and keep turning to the Lord and follow his ways because that is the evidence that you are a Christian. For those of us who are believers, what a great God we serve who providentially, through the normal outworkings of life, is providentially caring for us, is leading us, and is faithfully accomplishing his purposes. And, and as we know that, and the more we realize that, let us then rest in him and be his faithful followers and walk in his ways and tell others about Jesus and what a wonderful Savior he is. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God who works through the extraordinary and the mundane and the ordinary. How you use fallible people like us to accomplish your plans. We are so thankful for that. Lord, help us in the days to come to be more and more confident in who you are and in your plan and in your purposes. And as we rest in that, it will cause us not to be passive, but it will cause us to be active, busy in doing the Lord's work. And we pray that as a result, you would get the glory and you would draw, you would redeem more people to yourself. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.